Starting in 1966, he helped change the look of rock and roll fashion, selling his designs to Keith Richards, Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, Jack Nicholson, David Bailey, The Clash, Madness, George Michael, Iggy Pop, Stray Cats, Tom Waits, Fun-Loving Criminals, Johnny Marr, Oasis and The Pretenders. Designs from his labels appeared on record sleeves by Rod Stewart, Madness, in promo videos for George Michael, films by Jim Jarmusch, and stage costumes for David Bowie. The face said he's one of the crucial figures in the development of British style. He says, my designs were just rock and roll, a stage wear for the street. Who is he? Well, we're going to find out in this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Welcome. Still trying to understand what counterculture was or is. Listening to stories, digging deep, looking down the back of 60s sofas and under 70s scatter cushions and in all sorts of other places. Have you got any idea? Come and help us. BureauofLostCulture.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. And thanks to Adrian, Esmeralda, Rachel, Jake, and all the Soho Radio crew for all that they do. It's amazing. Now, back to it. Counterculture, youth culture, street and pop culture all intersect around music, books, and of course, clothes. I'm a little bit worried about my look, given that I'm sitting with one of the most stylish men in London. The man behind Cockle and Johnson. Johnson and Johnson. Johnson's the modern outfitter and the rocker with his outlets in Kensington Market, Kings Road, Covent Garden, Portobello Road, from the 60s to the noughties. Welcome. Lloyd Johnson. <laughs> Hello, Lloyd. Not sure about all that. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> How's it going? All right. Yeah, fine. Welcome to the View of Lost Culture. Thank you. You know what, Lloyd? In that long list of your clients or people who've worn your clothes, I, I did come across one particular name which blew me away, and that is Fred Astaire. Uh, I'll tell you the story there if you want it. Let's start with right. that. Right. It was about uh, 1971. Mr. Freedom, Paradise Garage and all those guys, Trevor Miles and uh, Tommy Roberts, were flying high. I also was doing uh, pop art uh, prints for my shirts and jackets and things like that. One of the prints I did, which is now in the Victorian Albert Museum collection, was a print of... Um, Fred Astaire from the film Top Hat. One day in the market, this woman came in, introduced herself as Fred Astaire's daughter, and uh, she lived in South Ken. And she said to me, I'm not sure whether my father would uh, be too happy about having his image splashed all over shirts and jackets. I'd, I immediately saw... Oh, God, this is the end of me in business. <laughs> so I said to her, would you like a coffee? Come and have a coffee and we'll have a talk. And uh, we had a chat and I said to her, what you see is what there is. You know, I've just got this small area in Kensington Market on the first floor. I'm a big fan of Fred Astaire. I watch the films uh, every Sunday afternoon and uh, basically love him, you know. we we spent maybe an hour and a half talking and she could see I was genuine she said oh I'll phone him tonight and uh, I'll pop in tomorrow and she came in the next day and she said he said it's fine but 
You've got to make him a jacket <laughs> and a silk scarf, <laughs> hand rolled. So you, you've been feeling a bit tense overnight, right? Expecting uh, this visit. Well, no, I don't panic. I I try to stay calm all the mm. time. And anyway, I said to her, "Yeah, that's fine, no problem." Mm. And then I cheekily said, "As long as you get him to send me a photograph of him wearing it." Because I, I knew nobody would ever believe me in a million years, you know. <laughs> she phoned him again and came in the next day and said, yeah, that's fine. He'll, he'll, um, he'll, he'll send you a photograph, but you mustn't use it for any commercial mm. gain at all. Mm. The same thing happened with Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, years later. And I fully understand all that sort of thing. But, I mean, it's just for my own personal Memories, right? Memories, and for me to believe it happened. Right. Because like, when you're, when you're living a day-to-day -day life, all these people come in and buy clothes, and some of them you don't know who the hell they are, you know, and then the next thing you know, they're megastars, you know. And, uh, I mean, I think that's the best way, you mm. know, because, like, they know they can come to your shop and you, they can talk to you, and they're not going to get right. treated any right. way differently right. than they've always been treated, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, I can't actually uh, match that story, obviously, but I have co-written a song with Cole Porter. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why, it's just reminding me, because... So I, I wrote this uh, song a few quite a few years ago, and it was called... Uh, I don't get my kicks out of you, right? And it was yeah. a sort of flipping, I get my kicks out of you, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. my music publishers in America, yeah. they got paranoid. It, it, doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like a Cole Porter tune. Yeah, it's just yeah. that it's taking the same idea yeah, and flipping yeah, it around, right? Yeah. They said, well, we, you know, we've got, we've got to check in with his publishers. So we ended up giving half the publishing rights yeah. to Cole Porter's estate, which considering I'm not very well known, yeah. they couldn't have made any money out of. Yeah. But I get to say I've co-written a song yeah, with Cole yeah, Porter. Yeah. Which I'm but, quite, uh, that's I'm happy that's normally the way, isn't it? Mm. It's the um, middlemen in yeah, between them. But listen, we've, we've already dived in, and let's back up the truck a bit, and I want to go right back to the start. I was born in Enfield, yeah. Uh, my family's from Hoxton, and uh, they lived in, funny enough, Aberdasher Street. Right. Uh, just behind Hoxton's uh, Square, where Drake's mm. Outfitters is now. Just before their flat, the whole area was flattened, and then it skipped their Victorian block of flats, hit the next uh, Victorian block of flats, which are now fake Regency houses. This is a, this is a, a German bomb. Well, it was a whole load of bombs. And uh, my gran and granddad, they moved to North London, and my mother got uh, married. I had my sister and me in uh, in Enfield. In, I think it was called Merry Hills Drive or something like that. So that was at a time when, well, particularly after that sort of devastation, but people were quite keen to move out of this out yeah, of inner, yeah. inner London, yeah, weren't they, yeah. into more and kind of leafy get, suburbs. They used to get uh, a lot of stick being called bomb dodgers, you know, as if it's like... Uh, you know, something terrible to be to move. Something out. slightly shameful to move out of the world yeah, of bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's being unpatriotic. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I stay there and get blown up. Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> okay. And my granddad yeah. was foreman on the GPO, doing all the bomb damage, mm. and basically he got a lot of chest problems because of gas leaks and mm. when they were underground doing stuff and all the rest of it. They moved to uh, Hastings because uh, being East End basically that's where they used to go for their summer holidays you know yeah and again for anybody who doesn't know the UK or London it's like Hastings is a sort of seaside town on the south coast 
Yeah, uh, working class. Working class, uh, very vi- working class, yeah. Uh, Victorian seaside mm. resort, mm. you know, with Punch and Judy, Biddy the Tub Man. It's bit, it was a bit like Brighton Rock, mm. you know, right, that, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Falling away from its sort of Victorian splendour of it, wasn't it? It started losing its way when um, uh, London had huge problems with homelessness and uh, drug-related problems mm. with people. And it was cheaper for them to, you know, the hotels were empty because of uh, people going abroad. During the 70s, they started placing people down, people that were down on their luck. So yeah, people with social issues. And in fact, yeah. actually, Hastings, is, maybe it still is, but it became associated, didn't it, with quite yeah, a lot of heroin, yeah. heroin users. And, yeah. uh, but when you were a kid, it wasn't like that, right? And we were, I mean, I, I was a sort of mod, I suppose. I suppose there is a theme running through this as well because there's always been that link between mods and the sort of these seaside places like Brighton yeah, and yeah, Hove yeah. And, uh, and and Margate and Ramsgate and Hastings, right? Lloyd Johnson witnessed the mounted invasion of his hometown of Hastings. And I'll never forget the view of a V formation, load of scooters coming down uh, the road with all the sun hitting the chrome. And I just thought... There's something about this that reminds me of medieval knights on chargers. And I just felt, we're taking over the world. You know, we're taking over the world. If you could pass a new law, Colin, one new law, what would it be? Ban all the scooters off the road. The rockers are another teenage category. They deride the mod's dress display, but they peacock in their own way just as frantically. Metal studs in leather jackets, the leather wear itself, the jackboots, these are just as much a proclamation of group identity. Trust to you, why do you go around with mods? Well, I prefer them. Do you want? I prefer them. I wouldn't like to be seen around with one of those scruffy lads. Do you like them because they dress properly and yes. all this sort of thing? Mm. Do you like being a mod? Yes, yeah, the greatest, isn't it? Do you it's li- the best, isn't it? And do you like getting involved in punch-ups? Well, I don't like getting involved, but you can't see too well. But I let and the rockers go for less sophisticated surroundings. They prefer motorcycles to motor scooters. Their chief instrument is noise in their music and their When machine. I was about 13, 14, there was a, a youth club open up there. And my mother said to me, um, you should go to this youth club, you know. thought I was sort of uh, too insular and isolated, you know. And a lot of my schoolmates went, and I got interested in uh, guitar music and stuff like The Shadows, The Ventures, Dwayne Eddy, Link Ray, and all that type of thing that they were playing there. Obviously, Buddy Holly and and things, and Dion and God knows what. Two or three guys there that didn't have Elvis haircuts. And I had a, a college boy. Because college boy's a haircut, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. yeah with a parting, side parting. Right. And a, a raised parting like that. Mm. It's sort of affiliated to uh, modern jazz players, I mm-hmm. suppose. Like Perry Como as well, you mm. know, that type of thing. There was a guy called Pete Gasson there who had this amazing suit. It was like an Italian bum freezer suit with a half belt at the back, cloth-covered buttons and... Uh, 
tight trousers with a little one inch slit up the side seam with a couple of buttons on top of the the slit so you picked up all that it was like you saw this was like the first time you'd seen a suit like that yeah yeah. with that kind of detail yeah yeah yeah. and then uh, my sister was getting married and my mum said oh you need a suit because my mum was divorced and I had to give my sister away I was probably 15 or something and that would have been 59 60 I went to uh it was either Hepworth's or Burton's, which are tailors, and uh, got a pinstripe suit. And she said, you can't have a pinstripe suit. That's a business suit. I said, no, I want a pinstripe suit. And with the pinstripe suit, I wore um, a Van Hoosen uh, stiff white collar, which was a cutaway collar, spread collar, uh, with a black knitted tie and a blue and dark stripe shirt. She said, what are you going to wear on your feet? And I had a friend called Dave Murrell, who um, had just recently um, done a photo shoot, and he was wearing Levi 501s and uh, a pair of Anello David boots, which I saw him often and lusted after those (laughs) boots. So I said to my mum, I want a pair of Anello and David boots. So... That was one of my first trips to uh, Soho and Anna and David's in Charing Cross Road. That was it. I was set. You know, I was I was uh, obsessed with clothes. You know, so I had to have. You know, I only went to work so I could buy another suit. We got to pause there a bit because your whole life has been about clothes. Yeah, very so, shallow, isn't it? <laughs> not at all. Have you got any insight into like why it was I, I so think important? It, I, for I think you? it's because. Um, my grandfather was always showing me how to clean my shoes, mm. right? You know, there was always that thing of uh, <laughs> having clean underpants on in case you get knocked down in the street. <laughs> I was brought up mainly by my grandmother and my, my grandfather. So my... Uh, he was a stylish man, was he? Most men were then. Um, they all wore suits. Even Irish navvies wore suits mm. to dig the roads, you know? I think the whole um, wearing a suit thing was... Um, amplified by people after the war coming out of the services and getting a free D-mob suit. D-mob suit, yeah. And so that was passed on to the children, you know, that, that, that sort of attitude of, you know, you've got to be clean-shaven and uh, sure you have mm. wash behind your ears sort mm. of thing, all that. So it was, you were brought up like that, you know. You'd done your first trip to London and then quite quickly you started getting clothes for other people or buying things for the people, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. With the, uh, in Hastings during the summer, you got a lot of French language students uh, mm. coming over for a month or two to learn English and you had Persian boys. The Persian boys had a lot of money because they were from very well-to-do families. One of the Persian boys, Mahmoud, who looked very much like Paul Anker, he wanted a... um, He'd seen Brian Jones on Ready Steady Go or something like that, or Thank Your Lucky Stars, one of those. And he had a Matlow T-shirt, but it was like a sort of air taxi one, you know, with a with a two-inch uh, block stripe across it. He said he wanted one of those. And he gave me some money to get that. And on top of that, he gave me some money to get something for myself. And uh, so it started that all the others were then, can you get me this? Can you get me that? You know, and... Uh, so I was getting a little extra income 
you know, from, uh, I suppose, the tips I was getting from right. them. Commission, right, commission, yeah. right, enterprise yeah. in order. So already, uh, Lloyd, you'd started dealing clothes, but what about when you started making them? How did that start? I, I moved to Sweden after the Mods and Rocker, so-called Mod, Mods and Rocker riots. Cause, uh, uh, and, and again, and for anybody who doesn't know about this, this was a sort of period in the early 60s? The 64. Yeah, where this kind of whole youth culture, kind of tribal thing, as you said... Started clashing. Yeah, and it was kind of blown up by the media, wasn't yeah, it? So yeah, you get these sort of pitch battles on, on these it, coastal towns yeah, and yeah. between people into rock music or rock and roll, I guess, yeah, and, yeah. And, and mods, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, ter- it turned into a quite a sort of thing, didn't it, for a while? Well, it sold know. newspapers, right. and they, the more they sold, the more they exaggerated right, it, of course. basically. Yeah. So you decided to get out of it all, and Yeah. It? My um, girlfriend's mum said, what are you going to do with your life? And you didn't think like that then, you know. It was like all Beatlemania and the Stones, and like, you know, you only live for the day. You You're know? young, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I'm going to get old. You don't think about tomorrow, you yeah. know. And... Uh, so I said, oh, I don't know. She said, well, I've just seen this advert in uh, for Salesman to the shop in London. So I, I looked at it and it was Cecil G's and I couldn't believe it, you know. So Cecil G, again, for anybody who doesn't know, was a sort of important... Very important. Tailors. He, he bought uh, outfitter. loads of American clothes over, Italian clothes, all in the 50s, you know, um, so I, I wrote off and asked for an interview, and I got an interview, got the job, and moved to London. You must have been in heaven then to get a... Yeah, well, it was 1966, so my first day, I've, I've come up to the West End feeling very frightened. I was aware I could in a bit of a wild place, you know? And uh, so my first uh, week was spent in the Shaftesbury Avenue uh, store, and the likes of Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and the Rat Pack, and all those sort of people, and English people like Max Bygraves and uh, Kenny Lynch, and all that, all shop there. And they put me on the mezzanine floor where the knitwear was, and I'm going through all this fabulous Italian knitwear, you know, and all the told that I have to take them out of the uh, cellophane bags, undo them so I understand the style, look at the style number, look at the price, fold them up put them back exactly where they are, take note of what pigeonhole they're in, you know, so I know the, you know, so I'm laboriously going through all this stuff. And then the guy I'm working under said, right, I'm going to lunch. There's a button here. If you get into trouble, push this bell. Uh, so I'm carrying on what I'm doing. And, and then all of a sudden I hear <coughs> behind me, and I turn round, and it's Johnny Walker from the Walker Brothers. And he's got a walking a walking stick, because he's done something to his leg, and a great big crew neck chunky jumper on. I say, um, oh, can I help you, sir? <laughs> you know, <laughs> my voice just went, you know. Because to me, those people were either on the television or cardboard cutouts in, in the, <laughs> the shop, record, store. record shop window, you know. <laughs> And uh, he was looking at me <laughs> laughing and I pressed the button and uh, it, I said, it's my first day. He said, it's all right. It's all right. Don't worry. So the guy from downstairs come up and served him and he said to me, I think you'd better work on the lift today. <laughs> right. And I think, oh, no, I'm going to get the bloody sack. It's my first day, you know, and I've got rent to pay and all this stuff. So I went down and stood by the, the lift. 
And then this man came in with a camel coat over his shoulders, smoking a cigar. said, what are you doing standing here, son? I said, oh, they've told me to, to operate the lift today. He goes, all oh, right. He said, can you take me to the first floor? So I get in the lift, press the button, and I notice there's only one floor. Keep my mouth shut. And he said, what's your name, son? I said, uh, Lloyd Johnson. The door's open, straight into an office, right? He said, uh, come in, Lloyd. He said, uh, I'm Mr. G, Cecil G. And I didn't know what to say because he was a bit of a god to me, you know, to me. I didn't recognise him because there weren't any photographs of him around. And he started chatting to me and uh, he said, uh, you know you've been had, don't you? You know. And I said, well, I thought so, yeah. I said, but what am I going to do on my first day? And he smiled and he said, I think you'd be better off in the Charing Cross Road shop because I was a bit modded up and all the rest of it. He said, uh, you like pop music and all that, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, well, that's where all the bands shop. You finish the week here, and on Monday, present yourself to Mr. Hirsch in Charing Cross Road, which is what I did. When I got to Charing Cross Road, I mean, we used to sit behind the tie bar, and there was a little gap behind the car, tie bar at the bottom. That's, that's the place where they sell ties, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's where we used to have our, our tea break, you know, in, in the, and somebody would be trying to tie on and... and things like that and you could put your hand under the tie bar and pull their tie <laughs> we had a lot of fun there and the customers there were um well john lennon bought his um suede jean jacket there and so like for you fresh to london you're working in cecil g's which mm. is a sort of dream anyway and then you move over to charing cross road and then you see people like john lennon right yeah. coming in to buy a jacket what yeah. did that feel like very weird but they were just normal people and it happened every day you know we had mick jagger came in mike mcveigh who was one of the window dressers uh, was just doing the window and he had all these old dr kildare shirts you know he managed to sell them to dave clark five right and they all started wearing them then mick jagger came in looking for a shirt and and, uh, <laughs> and mike mcveigh said how about a Dave Clark Five shirt? <laughs> and Mick Jagger said, "How about a punch on the nose?" You know, I mean, it, it was a constant flow of um, people like the Kinks and St. Louis Union, and so it was a constant flow of bands. You know, so you're also picking up on the sort of looks that are changing. I couldn't help that because right from Hastings, I was the one at the front of the stage completely um, cataloguing in my mind what the bands wore. You know, I could tell you what all the bands wore now. <laughs> so when you started working there and bands like that came in to get dressed, you were cataloguing what the sort of changing styles were. Yeah, but you're not aware of it. It just stays in your mind. Oh, so-and-so bought this, so-and-so bought that, you know. When I saw The Undertakers, which were a fabulous Liverpool band in Hastings, they were wearing drape suits... They had Anello and David boots, but they were baby seal skin, you know, that low, very low fur. And I hadn't seen those before, you know. And they wore top hats with um, chiffon, purple chiffon scarves round and things like that. Jackie Lomax was a singer and he he was just blinding, you know, just incredible. And were you living a life a bit then as well as working there? Were you sort of going to uh, gigs? I didn't and... like to go home because once you're... Once you've caught the uh, tube home to Clapham South, 
best stay indoors because it was pretty heavy then, you know. Uh, and sitting looking at four walls wasn't very inviting, especially, you know, the condition of the places that you live back then. Uh, so I, what I used to do, I used to finish work and I'd go to the ship in, uh, in Wardle Street and that's where all the bands used to drink, you know, uh, before they played the marquee. So I was just um, this quiet little guy that sat in the corner listening to people like Mark Boland go on about uh, playing in Germany and people ripping up the seats And when he was in John's Children. They all used to wear white, you know. So, so you see the quiet guys sit in the corner listening to the stories, but also checking out what they're wearing. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it was just my personality. So then you started making your own stuff. I got the sack one lunchtime from Cecil G's because the manager was picking on this old boy. And all this old guy used to do was run messages and make cups of tea for people, you know. And... Uh, the manager sort of seemed to like to push him around and boss him around. I said to the manager, leave him alone. He said, what did you say? You know, it was one of those sort of things. I said, leave him alone. Then I called him something I shouldn't have called him. And uh, he said, right, you're, you're, you've got the sack. I said, OK. So I put my coat on and just walked out. I must have bought a paper or something or seen a notice in Regent Street. Uh, there was a job going in at Austin Reed. So I just went straight in there, immediately was able to speak to Colin Woodhead that was running it. He said, uh, OK, he said, uh, why did you get the sack? And I told him. He gave me a job. And within a week, uh, Colin Woodhead had put an easel in and had me drawing out clothes, which he said, you concentrate on that. And if there's anyone needs serving... The others can do it, right? And you yeah, can draw, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not wonderfully well, but mm. okay. And I can draw clothes. We had this girl that used to come in called Catcher that made ties. And I, she's selling loads of ties to Q department. Uh, ties out of Liberty Prints, mm. Madras, uh, Batik Prints and things like that. And... Uh, quite flamboyant then yeah yeah but but sort of about probably two inches wide mm -hmm. you know with a, a square Flat, end because yeah. that was what was popular and then kipper ties came in so i thought we could do that and then i made a couple for myself that i wore to work my mate from hastings was working in tiles which was a 24-hour mod club running the Irving seller shop I used to spend my lunchtime in there. He said to me, where'd you get your tie? And I said, I made it. He said, do you want to make some samples? So we went to Liberty's and bought half a yard of this, half a yard. Um, uh, he helped me make them. He showed them to um, Irving Sellers and we got an order for 12 dozen ties. We made them, got paid for them. Within a week, he wanted another load, you know, and, and that's how it started, basically. And then we started making, you know, kipper ties. Mm. Ones with slash ends, ones with round ends, ones with in, insets with sequins round and all the rest of it. When we started selling to uh, Q, Blades, which was uh, um, a dandy fight um, Savile Row shop. And then we were selling to Washington and Tremlett, which was a posh um, shirt shop. Patrick said, who else do you want to sell to? And I said, well, I'd like to sell to um, Just Men. 
hung on you and granny takes a trip these boutiques of the swinging 60s yeah yeah they were the stylish stylists you know and uh, by then carnaby street was copying michael rainey at hung on you john pierce the chaps at um just men you know so this is the rise of king's road and yeah that's when it was just coming up really Mm. big but Um, this is quite a signal moment then isn't it for you because it's this is the time when you sort of stepped out from behind the counter yeah and you're actually making the designing yeah, stuff yeah. your own stuff right and then yeah. also people are people are digging it and want to buy it living in clapham south making those deliveries to the king's road coming up that escalator in the king's road into the sunshine and seeing all those beautiful girls in mini skirts when it was much more drab down in <laughs> clapham south and I said to Patrick, I want to live over this side of the town. <laughs> so within another week, we had a, we had, I suppose you could call it chambers because it was very Oscar Wilde. And we moved into um, a huge room in Harrington Gardens. By then we were getting dandified, right? And we thought we were, we were the bee's knees, you know? And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we... Um, went to uh, Just Men one day and the two guys that were running it, John Dacey and Ian Lockhead, said, um, we won't be here next time you you come. We're going to um, open a shop within a shop, High Street Kensington. I said, what do you mean? Because that concept wasn't around then. You know, One of them took us over there and we, we went into this empty building which was a department store previously, I guess. It was just bare floorboards, nothing in there they said we've got this bit and they had a carpenter there building the walls and all the rest of it patrick said uh, how much is it to get a bit and they said well that's our bit is uh, 20 quid and it was quite quite big a week yeah so we went up to the office and uh, the guy in the office said um, if you take this piece of chalk and mark out on the ground what you want i'll come down and price it so it was a bit like the gold rush, really, you know, even though there were no one in there. I mean, it was balmy. So we marked out a bit. We we ended up paying something like £14 a week. Muggins here, I had to build the shop and I built it like a, like a submarine. If I chose a corner, so I only had to build two walls, I made it rounded. I made oval shape to get in, so you have to step over and in. So it was like a like a submarine, submarine right, yeah. yeah and then i made a big plug to go in there <laughs> with a bar that came down and padlocked each side painted it all silver and put some um, upholstery um tacks you know the dome ones so it looked like rivets all over it so it was very jules verne right and then inside i got um art nouveau wallpaper from uh, john oliver green velvet curtains and we got a big chest of drawers, Victorian chest of drawers, and two high-back dining chairs, very innately carved each side. A friend of ours, Marcel Lassance, was a minou, which is the equivalent of a mod in in France, but a bit more classy. He said, come over to Paris and I'll introduce you to um, Newman Jeans. So we started importing Newman Jeans, and Ozzie Clark had just started, and we went over to see him and we we bought all his short um, cafe racer leather jackets and we went to uh, Westerway and Westerway and bought um, saddle shoulder 
uh, Shetland sweaters in, in fabulous colours. And when we were in France, we bought um, Burlington socks. So we had a complete French rock and roll look, basically. It was called the Heavy Metal Kids. Before it meant heavy rock and roll. Yeah, so this was the Heavy Metal Kids was born. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, Patrick got that from, I think, a John Steinbeck uh, mm. novel. Just to pause there for a second, Lloyd, because that's a good time just to say a little bit about Ken Market, because this building that you'd actually, was totally empty, yeah. became Kensington Market, That's right. which ran all the way through to the... 32 through, years. 32 years, and yeah. it ran all the way through to sort of 2000, didn't it? 2000. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just thought, just to say a few things about Ken Market, you are talking about it earlier and the sort of place that it you know, occupies and maybe isn't really credited for in a way. Absolutely. I think the the press initially were snobbish about writing about it uh, because uh, there was a lot of dross in there, you know, like uh, loom pants and star long sleeve T-shirts, granddad three-button T-shirts and all that. But people like Pepe Jeans and Darling Cooper, Pamela Motown, who became uh, the big designer with Mr. Freedom along with her boyfriend, Jim O'Connor. Anthony Price became uh, big doing the clothes for Roxy Music, having his own label. Sheila Brown, who was a designer for Sterling Cooper, became the head of Marks and Spencer's women's wear. A lot of talent come out there. And of course, there was Ken Corder, who had a place called Ruskin's. He now owns Aero Leathers which make probably the best leather jackets around. It's like an incubator. Stylists and, and fashion dressers yeah. and clothes makers yeah. and stylists, right? Yeah. We were all winging it. We were all learning to cut patterns on the wing. Uh, to explain what it's like, because I came right at the end when I f came to London. and it what was, year? It was, the, it was in the 90s, you know. Yeah, and right. it, was, yeah. it was at the end. And, but it was this mecca, really. Mm. You know, you went in this building. It was on two floors. And it was this, yeah, there were stalls, basically, or shops within this big shop. Yeah. And it was this feast of stylish stuff. And I'm going to tell you a, a story. We're jumping ahead, obviously, because Johnson's out of a shop in there. Mm -hmm. And I went into the shop, right, and I was trying something on in the changing room. I was listening to the music that was playing, right? And it was just right at the beginning for me, being a musician, and I didn't really know what an album was. But there was this music playing. I thought, what's this? It was amazing. And I stayed for ages in the changing room, so much so that the guy who was actually behind the uh, counter came round. I thought it maybe thought I was shooting up or something. You know yeah, what I mean? Or nicking something. <laughs> so what are you doing there? I said, I'm just really digging this music. What is it? And it was an album called Oedipus Schmedipus by Barry Adamson, right? You right. Know. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of introduced me to the idea of what an album could be like like a sort of concept album you know what i mean and as a consequence of that he was in bad seeds magazine birthday party right nick yeah. cave I mean, it, it turned me on to like what an album could be and the kind of music yeah. and, and that sort of really got me going but it was just that for me it wasn't just the clothes it was the vibe somehow yeah. johnson well, he 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 came in and he gave us all these CDs that he'd made, they're all handwritten on. Uh, there was one, um, something about Moss Side. Moss Side Story. Yeah, and he, he made them all for us and brought them in. They're incredible, and we became good friends with him. And one, one year he was he did a meltdown. We were talking, and he said, I said, you've got to do a main title theme that Jet Harris, uh, the theme to the man with the golden arm. Uh, he invited us along to the meltdown, and uh, he introduced... Uh, 
a man with a golden arm and playing this for a friend you know when tears come to your yeah, eyes yeah. and you you it's one of those i can't believe this is happening moments mm. Mm. And fortunately, I've had a lot of those, mm. you know, and uh, in my life mm. happened, you know. For you, so Johnson's wasn't just a clothes store, was it? It was no, sort of... just a way of life. It was a way of life. It was my life. I mean, sometimes I may, may have, through financial pressures, uh, skidded off the lines a bit and uh, lost track. You know, everybody does. But, I mean, always wanted to do things because I'd like them not necessarily because they sold you know but um, I was always trying to come up with something new and that's a lot of pressure all the time you know you've got heavy metal kids right and mm. again I mean quite quickly people started to come and buy Didn't, young people is youth culture wasn't it yeah, but yeah. also like quite quickly became sort of well known with sort of musicians and yeah and people behind the scenes in the mm. music business some of some of the first people i had were the roulettes which was adam faith's backing band so that was great for me you know people have been your heroes and unit four plus two you know and, and they were bands that really were from the early 60s you know mm. and they had jigged themselves around mm. to lose the name and sort of come up again metamorphosize into yeah, something into a bit more psychedelic yeah yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was it. that was an interesting. And period. how would you describe the style at that time? Your style, I mean, as in what you you guys were doing. Call that dandy peacock look. Because we came from doing Newman jeans and the um, short cafe racer jackets, like the sort of thing uh, Michel Ponnerif used to wear. You know, it was like a French pop style. Then we. Um, discovered these shirts which were called lean decor which is line of the body or skin shirt basically shirts with three darts high waist at the back right each side and then another dart coming from under the under the arm each side at the front with one inch high collars and a spear point collar and we started making those that was a period where it had uh, gone from three button suit wasted with high vents towards two button fitted suits and very very french looking and we were doing that and then we were doing um, very slim riding max we we're doing them in six colors in a double texture fabric they had straps around the legs inside and all that but we were doing all these uh, printed shirts then it morphed into pop art shirts and then we found fabrics with uh, magic mushrooms on and clouds and you know so it went in all through that and we did the uh, beagle collar all sorts of nonsense you know i like what you said about you know you what you're creating what you saw as stage wear but to be worn on the street yeah well that's what yeah. it was right yeah. and then that started to attract that kind of rock and roll yeah, audience, yeah. didn't it yeah, really yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i never went the platform boot mm. way. it sort of evolved didn't it from heavy metal kids into cochran johnson, johnson yeah and we put established 1966 <laughs> so mentally people used to look at it and mm. think it was 1866 <laughs> yeah. you know. and what was sort of stuff were you doing then we were doing our own uh cordroy um, and velvet things and I was doing French style velvet jackets in loads of colours with concave co uh, shoulders a bit like what mm. you've got on and narrow shoulders and um, Charlie Chaplin suit I did like a short boxy jacket with Oxford bags I was also selling shoes at that time from uh, Daisy Roots which were very colourful and Rod Stewart used to buy those from mm. us Ronnie Wood uh 
was a friend back then uh, because Chrissy Wood worked on Big O Posters, which was, I think it was run by... Um, uh, Harvey Goldsmith? Yeah, Harvey Goldsmith. He was always in the market. I was good friends with Chrissy, and we'd all hang out. I mean, especially early early 70s in uh, Bieber's Rainbow Room. It just slowly changed all the time, you mm. know. I'd never really noticed it. You know, mm. you just... You just kept working. Yeah, you just in instinctively cut a new collar shape or mm. a new body fit or, you know. Just to talk a little bit about the sort of place of all that stuff. So this was a time when, I suppose, in the sort of 60s and late 60s and early 70s, where certainly men's fashion was coming a lot more sort of flamboyant, wasn't it? And the mix-up of all that stuff then, Lloyd, you know, youth culture and counterculture and pop culture and streetwear mm. and in London Kensington and Chelsea it was quite a time right you know sometimes people accidentally get something wrong and it looks brilliant I mean an example of that in my mind is Brian Jones when he went through the sort of uh, overdressing period you know and because he because of his facial features and his hair mm. it just like it overrides any mistakes he might make putting things together were you, were you living the life a bit or were you just working the whole time were oh, you so we've been very naughty right tell me come on <laughs> not too many drugs because uh, i'd seen a couple of people um drop off the edge of the world you know and a couple of suicides as well i was drinking too much every saturday night you go home with a different girl you know and you wake up in the morning and think, who is this? What's her name? <laughs> <laughs> Living in Chelsea. No, so it was great. Whilst you were at Kent Market, um, that's where you met Queen. And didn't they have a stall there for a while? Freddie worked for Alan Mayer. Alan Mayer was the bass player for the Beat Stalkers. And he became the bass player for The Only Ones. And Peter Perrette was the... The singer, they had uh, another girl, another planet, a big hit. Freddie was in a band called Smile. We sort of knew one of them was going to break, you know. Freddie was just another guy that worked in the market. Really nice guy, very, very polite. Not how he's portrayed as mm. over-the-top outrageous. He that wasn't came like, later, didn't it? Yeah. He, he wasn't like that then, mm. you know. Uh, I, he used to go to the gay clubs with uh, Peter Rogers, who worked for me. And Mary used to come in from Bieber's and, you know, if he hadn't gone home that night or something, do you know where, where Freddie is? And Peter would just say, well, he, I left early. They used to go to heaven, you know, behind Charing Cross. It was obviously, you know, he was gay because he'd go to gay clubs with a gay guy, you know, but Peter and him weren't having a scene, you know. Mary wasn't quite sure what was going on at that time. No, well, no, it's sad, really. The market itself, and it was this kind of cultural crossroads as well, wasn't it? In a yeah, way, um, yeah, they were, there was always musicians there. And they were working there, doing their thing until yeah, yeah. they could get their musical career like yeah. off the ground. And, right and Ronnie Wood backed uh, Colin, Colin Bennett, who was my flatmate back then. Colin made uh, a few jackets for us, and Rod Stewart uh, wore one on Gasoline Alley on the centre fold. And Colin used to make stage wear for him. All of a sudden, Ronnie came in and said, I'm going on tour with the Stones. And it's funny then, because the Port Cullis came down. We, we didn't really see each other 
again until until he started buying stuff from the King's Road shop again, right. you know. Right. Well, so we're going to move on to that in a second. But, you, you know, people, more and more people started wearing, like famous people started wearing your stuff, didn't yeah. they? And then I mean, it's been, you know, many, many down the years, right? Mm. So you were doing quite, you are becoming more successful. You opened a boutique on King's Road. Yeah. My first wife and I split up. So I stopped calling it Johnson Johnson's. And I called it Johnson's mm-hmm. in the market. And then when we opened the one in the King's Road, I called it Johnson's the Modern Outfitters uh, because uh, in the 60s, all the more fashionable shops had things like clothes for the modern man or, uh, you know, Harry's modern wear, menswear and all that stuff, you know. And I thought, well, I want something a little bit sophisticated, more sophisticated than that. So I called it the Modern Outfitters, uh, which really took off, you know. Just before we go on to boutique, 70s London's changing, the UK's changing, recessions come. And yeah, it's yeah. quite interesting. Long, we're we're recording long... this at the moment now. I mean, when it sort of might be going into a similar sort of era. Yeah. And for a while, you came out of uh, sort of designing stuff, didn't you? Also, the hair came off. All of a sudden, I had what I call a mummy's boy haircut, you know, like a, a fop, you know, like a parting hair over one eye, short round the back and sides, that sort of thing. I started selling uh, second hand, which is now called vintage dead stock you know menswear from the 30s 40s 50s a little bit from the 60s and that was because of the miners strike it became the three-day week so electricity was on ration you could only run your factory for three days a week big companies got the priority getting anything made was impossible on the scale that i was operating on this was 73 something like that so i started doing uh, second hand and and all that I papered one wall with brick wallpaper because I like I like kitsch and then uh, all the rest of the walls I papered with the uh, 50s and 60s um, newspapers so I, I got uh, weapon amnesty you know with the flick knives and knuckle dusters and maces and god knows what pictured in the center page another you know newspaper overreaction plus all the mods and rocker riots and stuff like that you know on the back of aquariums you get all this uh, pictures of fish and underwater plants so i did that all along where i put the displays of the shirts what i could make out of nothing i go down to brick lane three o'clock in the morning when it was dark with a tour pick up things like 1940s sandals and then i discovered somebody that could get plastic sandals and then there was a guy that was uh, making peg trousers because uh, Let It Rock had just started. The, the Westwood and Westwood yeah, and yeah, shop, yeah. yeah. So I was buying pink and blue pegs from him. I got my sister to make me uh, mohair sweaters, which was basically the soul boy look. You know, all you needed then was a wedge haircut and one blonde streak down one side, you know. Uh, so they all started coming and then... I found uh, these two Jewish guys uh, in Leyden Street, near where they used to slaughter the chickens. They were importing American stuff, so I could get all college jackets and uh, bowling shirts and all that sort of thing. And they also had a deal with the team. That's ex, so it's ex-army stuff. Yeah, basically. yeah. yeah. So they've never been unpacked since the 40s, you know, since the end of the war. So I used to buy 
single breast and double breasted from them, the whole Glen Miller thing kicked off in uh, Canvey Island with the Gold Mine Club. Chris Hill was DJing. All the kids started coming to me buying them. I'm trying to think of the name of the band. He was a postman, I think. Subway Sect. Yeah. Vic Goddard. Yeah, yeah. Vic Goddard. I, I used to look upon them all as the little kids, you know, because I was 30 by then, you know, and they were 17, you know. So they're all coming out of punk, right? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Punk, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So p- they started buying all the 40s stuff, you know. And then I was getting Susie and Billy Idol and um, Steve Severon, all those people. Nils, uh, who was a mate of mine, Nils Stevenson was uh, Malcolm's right-hand man. He used to bring all the flyers over for the Sex Pistols, you know. And I'm saying to him, well, what, what's all this about? You know, he goes, I said, it's a band Malcolm's putting together, he's promoting, you know. And I used to put all the flyers in every single bag, you know, because like when you didn't have anything to do, you know. <laughs> so everyone that bought something from me got got a Sex Pistols flyer for El pa- Paradiso. Or, and now I look at the prices those things are going <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, shit, I had <laughs> piles of those every week. You know, incredible, isn't it? I did say to Niels, you ought to try and uh, register this blackmail lettering. Cut out newspaper lettering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you couldn't do it because each font was uh, was registered. You know, each <laughs> single letter was registered. So you're still, like, dressing the musicians and the... Because they hadn't become who they became. They're just basically normal people, aren't mm. they? You know, I was never phased by any mm. of that. The only, mm. the only time I got starstruck and tongue-tied, apart from Johnny Walker, was uh, when Charlie Watts came in. Charlie Watts and Tony Meehan were my two clothing gods, you know. <laughs> Charlie Watts, a very well-dressed man. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then 1979, you launch La Rocca. That's right, yeah. That was because... Um, we were getting so much publicity as a mod shop because we did uh, the clothes for uh, Phil Daniels and Sting in uh, Quadrophenia, and somehow it leaked out, you know, through the grapevine. The, all the all the newspapers and all the all the magazines were going. If you want the mod look, go to Johnson's, and I just thought this is a blind alley, you know, this is all going to be over. And uh, people go, oh, don't go there, it's a mod shop. You know? Yeah, and also it was second time round for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I did was um, caricature versions of things. You know, I'd, I'd sort of do something like a three-button uh, leather blazer, like Ivy League-style blazer, but I'd do it in white, yellow, blue, red, you know, colours that should never be um, made. But the white one, Anthony Perkins bought the white one, and my wife was serving him, and uh, I just said to her, don't go near the shower. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? I said, you'll find out. And uh, she asked me later, I said, that was Anthony Perkins from Psycho. Psycho. You know? <laughs> so we had a lot of people like that, like Jack yeah. Nicholson used to come in, Dustin Hoffman. So the Jack Nicholson started to wear your wear La Rocca. And... Yeah, yeah. We he wore all the fifties suits mm. and things like that. And one day he was trying on uh, shoes in the basement. We had a um, a very old barber's chair, and we we fixed fiberglass uh, skulls on it. So the the chair became known as the Sweeney Todd chair. Uh, Scruffy, who was uh, 
uh, one of the girls that worked for me, Bish Nethercock, was her dog. He used to like sleeping on the chair. And Jack Nicholson came in to buy some uh, shoes and uh, he wanted to sit down to try the shoes on and he went to Usher, Scruffy off, and Scruffy bit him. Right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, it was another one like those uh, Fred Astaire time. I'm thinking, oh no, that's the end of the <laughs> shop. <laughs> Get sued by Jack Nicholson yeah. for getting a dog and, bite. And uh, uh, we said, are you all right, are you all right? He said, don't worry, it was my fault. Mm. Really nice bloke, you know. Mm. He bought the shoes and he always used to come every morning. Every morning after that, he'd come with uh, bones for Scruffy. <laughs> yeah, he used to bring scruffy leftover food from his meal the night before. In lots of people came to me to shop, but I wanted to mention one in particular to you because I did an interview with Johnny Marr. Yeah. And, um, and Johnny Marr is very fond of you because, yeah. you know, he loves clothes. Yeah. You know, and he was up in Manchester and this is pre-Smiths. He was working in a... Aladdin's cave. Aladdin's cave. And yeah. he, had this, he had this sort of... said he had a boss who was a bit of a... A bit, Carl of a, a bit of a chance. He used to send Johnny and with Angie yeah. down to London to King's yeah. Road to sort yeah. of basically nick yeah. ideas. And they were all... babies, you know. They 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 looked to me as if they were about sixteen, seventeen. You know, and they were they... friends with uh, uh, good friends with Billy Billy Duffy. Billy Duffy, right? Me. So Johnny said that he came down and. Uh, with, you know, they have this on this mission to sort of basically nick your ideas or nick your stuff to take yeah, back so that yeah, they can yeah, rip them off up yeah. in London's cave. But he said he got really fed up with it because he, he, he liked you and he liked the clothes, and so yeah. they used to they used to get nice stuff or yeah. cool stuff for themselves. Yeah. And then they used to give the guy in London's cave the sort of dead stock. And he said that when they got back, to the, they get the train back to Manchester. Yeah. And before they went into scene, they'd, they'd separate out the stuff they wanted <laughs> yeah. to hide it. Yeah. And go and give him the stuff that they didn't really like. And then he'd say, yeah. is, this, is Lloyd Johnson really doing this stuff? And they'd like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For him, coming to your <laughs> shop was part of the whole London thing, I suppose. Yeah, but it yeah. was actually like they were super excited. Do you remember yeah. him coming in? Yeah, yeah, I do. I used to take the mickey out of them, actually, because they, they were so banging love, you know. And it's very sweet. I love seeing people that love each other, you know. And uh, I used to say, oh, look at the two little lovebirds. And they go red, you know. It's funny, you know. Billy Duffy, later of the cult, he worked for you. What was he like? Billy was fine. He was a little bit lazy. <laughs> I got angry one day because he was working down the warehouse for one week, filling in. And I came into the warehouse and he was laying on the, one of the packing tables, you know. And I said to him, uh, we need to do a coat hanger count because <laughs> I've got a load of suits coming in. So I, got, I had him counting coat hangers. You know. Everyone that worked for us were, was great looking and good models for the, the clothes and they all used to go to the, the clubs. So we used to, every time we did something new, we used to let them all choose an outfit, head-to-toe outfit. So that was great publicity. George yeah. Michael wearing, you know, wearing a Johnson's yeah, DSA yeah, Rockers yeah. Revenge leather yeah, jacket. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That is probably the best-known piece of uh, stuff from Johnson. I saw uh, biker jackets with Russian uh, artworks on the back and found out that they were from a guy called Russell Tate, and I drove up to see him and asked him to do uh, some artworks for me. BSA one, oh, there was about five of them, you know. But the BSA one took off. That was selling really well. And then George Michael, he bought about ten of them, I think, you know. 
That was his stage way on that tour, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the boots with the mm. toe and heel. There's been many other down the years, because you also had a shop on Port Bella Road, you had a yeah. shop on yeah, so Notting Hill and yeah, yeah. Kings Road. But, I mean, all the other people, I mentioned some of them earlier on, you know, Madness, Iggy Pop, Tom Waits, Fun Loving Criminals. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. What, 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 what did Bob Dylan wear then? He bought um, a white fringed uh, biker jacket for the Albert Hall gig. But the funny story there is Antoine Mills, the that worked for me. He was working in the shop in the King's Road when Bob Dylan came in, but didn't see Bob Dylan come in, just saw all these gorillas surrounding this little bloke. And uh, we used to get quite a bit of shoplifting, so he thought it was a bunch of shoplifters. And all this stuff was being thrown, you know, there were all these big guys uh, surrounding this person, and all this stuff was being thrown up and all over the place in um, on one of the tables in the shop and Anton went up and said uh, you're going to buy some of that or what <laughs> and then the little person from the middle of these sheepishly said yes I am you know <laughs> and it was a pop dealer so down the years you know really from that sort of early Ken market to when you ended around about 2000 I mean where mm. were you getting stuff made uh, down in the East End, early on in Manchester, when I was 22, we had our own shirt factory in Rye Hill, outside of Wakefield. We found a disused supermarket, when, you know. So you've got stuff made all over the place. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Always in, always in the UK? Always in the UK until, until the 90s, where we were getting stuff made in Indonesia. We haven't mentioned some of the other stuff that you did, the new romantics, and also the easy listening thing, right? The easy so. listening stuff, yeah. All the um, 70s uh, big collars, satin mm. shirts, and uh, square-toed fake Gucci shoes, massive collars and lapels, sort of uh, dandy coats, and the full-length fur, pink fur coats and things like that. Uh, Oasis bought the coats but not in pink but the, the long pink ones uh, all the bouncers from Ministry of Sounds bought them and they were mainly black guys and they dyed all their ha hair blonde so they were there was a definite look and one of them said to me how's it going I said well it's not going great at the moment he said oh we won't let anyone in unless they're wearing La Rocca <laughs> so uh, the cheapest thing to buy was t-shirts mm -hmm. right and uh, the t-shirt sales went through the roof you know i mean i can't believe it you know touch wood it still carries on in my life but everybody is on your side you know it just seemed like that you know yeah that's a lot to do with you i think lloyd though just to wheel on towards the end ken market closed around about 1999 2000 didn't it it was 2000 and it dripped on, on until about march uh, yeah. in 2000 and that was a real real loss wasn't it i mean as ever you know cities change things yeah. get developed you know that kensington high street where kensington market was it always seemed or started to seem like an anachronism because that part of london became more and more kind of just about money in a way, didn't yeah, it? And, yeah. you know, a, a sort of sl a bohemian street culture, youth culture, counterculture, pop culture like that. It yeah, was it's lost. it was lost, right? Yeah, right well, there, it's all there. moved down to Shoreditch and moved. pretty soon you'll yeah. have skyscrapers and God yeah. knows what going up down there. Yeah, and it, uh, it, it always moves on, isn't it? But I, Ken Market was a loss, wasn't it, mm. really? Because yeah. it, was, it wasn't just the, for the clothes, but it was this kind of melting pot and a... As we were saying earlier, like it, an incubation place. You know, so you had people coming out of 
the Royal College and the London School of Fashion mm. and even people that just wanted to have a go, you know. Mm. It gives people a, a chance to do it. And it's sort of, it's something that you can't do that in an artificial way. I think also it was a place where people bumped into each other. You know, bands got formed, didn't they? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it was like this crossroads for stuff happening right yeah, as well yeah, yeah. so you yeah. know and that's kind yeah. of involved wasn't it for you sort of around right about 2000 you decided to pull out of that kind of retail stuff didn't you and what was happening is the rents were going so high i could see everything shifting to shoreditch i lived in west london i lived in putney there's no way i was going to get on a tube train and go to uh, shoreditch every day acid jazz when that all that come in and hip-hop and all the rest of it i couldn't relate to that at all you know, I mean, I'm I'm a guitar band minded person. Uh, I like kitsch and all that sort of thing. Cramps and you'd done your time. You'd dressed a lot of people. Yeah, you'd yeah. Created a lot of looks. Yeah. The Jim Jarmusch films. I mean, I love those films, right? Yeah. You know, Down by a Law Mystery Train. Yeah, you've yeah. Got, you've got clothes yeah. in them, right? Yeah. I did hear just from a, a little bird that you've got a a hobby making <laughs> flying machines yeah, model airplanes right? yeah which fly though right yeah 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 but they're all pre 1950s mm. um real boys own stuff mm. you know uh and I, i've also uh, been hooked on collecting tin plate toys now mm. so i collect clockwork tin plate toys is your house super stylish well, the last one you would have liked the whole garden was hawaiian i had a 1961 coffee bar in the basement it almost looks like a strip club, you know, like had a jukebox with uh, no records after 1961. Kitsch version of Americana, you know. Loads of uh, instrumental bands like the Cougars, the Hunters and people like that, you know. Lloyd Johnson, thanks very much to come into the Bureau of Lost Culture. My pleasure. OK. Thanks so much to Lloyd. What a terrific fella. What a terrific storyteller and so stylish. I've got to get myself some new clobber. Lloyd's put together an amazing soundtrack of his favourite tracks. It came from the show that he did uh, back in Chelsea in 2012 with Paul Gorman. It's a wonderful, rip-roaring selection of his favourite tunes. Join our mailing list and you can get it too. Leave us a review wherever you listen to this, all right? And you can tell your mates and join us at BureauOfLostCulture.com. We're going to play out with a track by the band The Real Tuesday World. It's called Too Much Too Soon from their album, Blood.